Welcome to Powered by How, where thought leaders and industry leaders come together to discuss the technologies being developed to build a more sustainable energy sector. This podcast series is brought to you by Reuters Plus in partnership with Aramco, a leading global energy producer. I'm Nisha Pillay, and in this episode, Towards a New Hydrogen Economy, we're taking a deep dive into hydrogen. Long dismissed as too expensive, the role of hydrogen is now being reappraised. Many believe that developing cost-effective and lower carbon hydrogen production will be essential if we're to achieve global net zero targets. Joining me to discuss the role of hydrogen in the energy transition are four world-leading experts. Bashir Dabusi is Director of Technology Strategy and Planning at Aramco. Bashir has held several technical roles, including VP Research at CAPSARC. Tim Gould is Chief Energy Economist at the International Energy Agency, the IEA. Elizabeth Press is Director of Planning and Programme Support at the International Renewable Energy Agency, IRENA. And Daryl Wilson is Executive Director for the Hydrogen Council and has worked in the hydrogen energy sector for the past 15 years. Welcome to you all. Let's start by looking at where we're at right now regarding hydrogen. On the one hand, it seems to be full of promise and potential. On the other, it's very expensive. So Elizabeth Press, I'd like to ask you, what do you see as the key challenges we must overcome to make hydrogen a viable fuel for the energy transition? To start with, just to align a little bit the question, because the hydrogen itself is not expensive. What's expensive is clean hydrogen is expensive because it's uh, uh, the, 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 the premium that comes on top of it to make it clean, uh, be it through renewable energy for the green hydrogen uh, solutions or uh, CCS, carbon capture and storage for, for blue, um, it, it adds costs. Uh, so that, that certainly uh, is the nuance that needs to be noted because hydrogen has been around for a long time time and uh, several times in the history, uh, there has been an, an attempt uh, to make it more mainstream in the energy space. And uh, it did not work for many, many reasons, but part of it is really the competitiveness with, with, with other solutions that exist. Uh, and uh, uh, what we have right now and what is a little bit different from the previous attempts uh, in uh, to, to, to bring hydrogen more mainstream is two, two factors. One is we have the uh, imperative of climate change and uh, Obviously, there are thousands of solutions that we need, and hydrogen is one part of the puzzle that uh, that exists at this point in time that can help us in the areas where very few other solutions uh, exist. And I'm sure we're going to go deeper into this discussion in, course, uh, in the course of this podcast. And the second thing is the cost of uh, um, renewable energy that really has gone down significantly and made green hydrogen a viable option. Uh, so we, th these are the two elements that exist and, and, and uh, the starting point, and this is where we have to start working from. And, uh, and now it comes the spectrum of conversations where it's going to be the most competitive, how it can be uh, uh, scaled up from a demand side, uh, where, um, you know, how, how the transport uh, um, of hydrogen factors into the cost structure, uh, the standards uh, and, and, uh, and the um, uh, certification to make sure that it actually contributes meaningfully to climate change and it's not just kind of repeating what we have. So there are all these elements that we'll need to uh, move forward. And I would say the two issues that are more criti most critical right now is one, uh, the standards and certification 
uh, to uh, to create this kind of common understanding for a meaningful global trade of clean hydrogen. Uh, and the second part of it is the prioritization to actually have uh, uh, leaders, leading countries, companies who are actually looking at this solution, decide and create a very stable demand uh, that, that sub potential suppliers can count on to actually move uh, with market creation. Right. So market has to be created by political and business leaders showing some direction. Um, Tim Gould, the IEA has identified low carbon hydrogen, clean hydrogen uh, as a key technology to reaching our 2050 net zero goals. So which sectors do you think it will be most relevant for where we're going to see the, the progress and the applications? I think, I mean, as Elizabeth had mentioned, I mean, the hydrogen is already part of our energy system. Um, there's around 90 million tons demanded and used uh, today. Um, most of that is in refining and in some industrial uses. Um, so I think the first task is to try and transform that use, which is by and large from, from fossil fuels and results in close to 900 million tons of CO2 emissions each year. Let's take those existing uses and switch them across to um, clean, low emissions uh, hydrogen. Uh, so that's in a sense the the obvious starting point for, for the discussion. And there's a lot of uh, work done already on, on, on trying to move some refineries to, to a sort of low emissions model. Um, but that's not going to be enough. Um, you're going to need also demand growth in new sectors. And, and there's, an, there's a lot of discussion about what the most promising sectors are. Um, but most of them are in the transport and in some industrial applications. Uh, the production of synthetic fuels um, and uh, electricity storage, and and they, they that's where you know the the what's happening today can really reduce future um, CO two emissions if we are confident that production is based on clean uh, low carbon uh, technologies. So and um, there's a lot of interest at the moment on the in the transport side on what can be done to move the shipping sector, for example, uh, towards. Uh, clean fuels. I, I think what we need to have in mind is that you know, electrification, the use of clean electricity directly, is going to be an incredibly important part of the transformation of the energy sector. But direct electrification is not going to be able to solve all the problems that we have. Um, and so there's a big opportunity then for molecules, for especially if they are then you know produced and, and, and consumed without, uh, without emissions um, to contribute to the transformation of the energy sector. And that's particularly in long distance transport and some industrial sectors. And that's really where um, the case for, for low emissions hydrogen is, is at its strongest. So Daryl Wilson, your role is to engage with governments, industry, investors to scale up hydrogen production. Do you agree with Tim Gold that hydrogen, the green hydrogen of the future, really should be targeted at areas like long distance transport, ships and road haulage, and very difficult to abate sectors, heavy industry? Or do you see it in a different way? Well, Elizabeth and Tim have made some excellent points, and, and I think we're all aligned and agreed that hydrogen is going to play a very significant role in mitigating climate change. In fact, our report uh, issued last October on the contribution of hydrogen to an overall net zero strategy suggests 
that hydrogen will be 22% of final energy use by 2050. That's roughly the con contribution of electricity in many jurisdictions around the world today. So there's a big journey to take, and there are many use cases. Those use cases are not fixed and generalizable for all geographies. So in some areas, you'll find some very heavy application in transport. Uh, consider uh, the difficulty that Japan and Korea and parts of Eastern China will have with direct electrification. We expect that there'll be significant contributions of hydrogen to transport in those areas as they import large quantities of hydrogen, perhaps from the Middle East or Australia. In other places, the hydrogen applications uh, are, as uh, Tim made the point, already prevalent in production of ammonia for our uh, support of our food uh, supply. And so we'll see those uh, current uh, uses of hydrogen uh, converting. Um, our tracking of this uh, evolution with the Hydrogen Council over the last couple of years shows that the industrial sector is actually moving a little faster than we anticipated. So yes, uh, some of those conversions of existing use are, are already underway. Uh, but we have a long journey to take, and Elizabeth made the point that as we go on this journey, we need codes and standards uh, that support uh, the sector growing up and maturing so that we all understand what we're dealing with, with the environmental attributes, with the sustainable attributes of hydrogen, and having a, a language and a way of, of a, um, uh, crediting the green contributions that hydrogen can make in a consistent way. So lots of work to do. Uh, the good news is that we're off to a good start. Uh, we're now in the implementation phase with many, many projects around the world, and uh, hydrogen is, has moved a long way even in these last few years. So let's take a look at one of those use cases now. Bashid Dabusi, Aramco has been working on a pilot project in partnership with Japan to export blue ammonia, three parts hydrogen, one part nitrogen, creating ammonia in Saudi Arabia and shipping it to Japan for power generation. How do you see the significance of this, the potential of this? Thank you, Nisha. Um, in fact, uh, the shipment you referenced uh, was uh, the first demonstration of an international shipment of blue hydrogen. It was uh, a shipment that demonstrated the value chain of blue hydrogen, which is hydrogen that's produced through uh, the reforming of methane and the capture of CO2 and the use of that CO2 uh, either for uh, producing products or for uh, enhanced oil recovery or storage underground. Uh, in fact, this was in 2020. It was the result of about a year-long collaboration between uh, Saudi Aramco, SABIC, and the Japanese Institute of Energy Economics of Japan, as well as several uh, partners in Japan. Uh, we studied the whole process. The ammonia uh, produced uh, from hydrogen was used uh, for multiple applications in Japan. So we exported this ammonia. It was about 40 tons of uh, blue ammonia. It was used in power generation uh, uh, in Japan in different modes, uh, either with co-firing or uses, use in furnaces or in a microturbine and so on. The actual production of the hydrogen and the ammonia is a process that we do typically, uh, and SABIC, our affiliate, is a key uh, producer of uh, ammonia globally, is one of the largest ammonia producers we also use the CO2 that was captured from that blue ammonia shipment to produce methanol in one of the SABIC plants that converts CO2 into methanol. The methanol then can be used to, do, to produce uh, chemicals and materials, but can also be used uh, in, in various applications. 
And uh, a portion of the uh, CO2 was also transported and injected into Aramco's own CO2 enhanced oil recovery uh, pilot, which is a pilot that was developed in 2015 that basically injects 800,000 tons of CO2 per year. It's one of the large CO2 carbon capture and storage facilities that are, are known globally. Uh, in the world. Okay, so you've just described to us a demonstrator. I want you to leap way into the future. What is its potential then? Are we likely to see this kind of technology being used to decarbonize natural gas, to decarbonize methane? In fact, um, Aramco, uh, post this announcement, has been uh, over the last two years working diligently on developing a hydrogen business. And we've made a recent announcement, it's in our sustainability report that was issued in June, that Aramco intends to produce by 2030 11 million tons of blue ammonia. That's about 2 million tons of blue hydrogen. Um, this, uh, again, is a, a, a very important area for us because, as you mentioned, hydrogen enables uh, the decarbonization of several hard-to-abate sectors. Uh, these sectors include heavy-duty transport, uh, uh, aviation, marine, potentially, industry, steel, uh, and also helps in the decarbonization of the power sector. Uh, so we see that uh, there, there is a potential for a growing market. Today, as, our, uh, as my colleagues uh, uh, have already highlighted, there's about 90 million tons of hydrogen produced globally. Um, we see that uh, this uh, can grow significantly over uh, the next uh, um, 10 years uh, by another possibly 70 million tons. But we also see that beyond 2030, uh, the use of uh, low carbon hydrogen, whether it's uh, produced from hydrocarbons as in blue or produced from renewable energy is going to take off uh, beyond 2030 uh, up to 2050, where uh, the estimates by, by you know, our esteemed colleagues in IEA and the Hydrogen Council have already estimated upwards of 600 million tons of uh, clean hydrogen uh, to be produced and, and, and consumed uh, in order to achieve a lot of the world's net zero uh, targets. Elizabeth Press, what we've just heard from Bashir is using fossil fuel, natural gas, as the starting point to create blue hydrogen. So what is Irina's view of blue hydrogen as opposed to green hydrogen, which uses renewable energy, but which is at least at the moment a whole lot more expensive? In our opinion, uh, the majority of hydrogen 2050 has to be green uh, in order to have a meaningful contribution to climate change. Uh, at the same time, uh, there is, a, there is a, a percentage of blue hydrogen that could play a role, uh, especially with countries like the UAE, Saudi Arabia, that actually have a natural endowment and strategies to produce blue hydrogen uh, and, uh, and uh, as a part of the economic diversification strategy, they're considering uh, um, this particular avenue. But we do need to keep watching what's happening because the cost competitiveness between the two needs to be watched. Um, and I actually remember a few years back uh, that the estimates for green hydrogen to be competitive was around 2040. And now it was shrunk down by 10 years in 2030. And now some, we're seeing it even today in some instances being already cost competitive in certain settings, especially with the current 
um, gas prices, uh, it, it, it is making a lot more sense. So, so I think uh, whatever the strategy ends up being in the end, uh, that the green hydrogen will play a lot bigger role uh, in, in 2050 than, than any other uh, form of hydrogen. Tim Gold, 2050 is a long way off. In the meantime, over the next decade, over the next 15 years, what is your opinion on the role for blue hydrogen derived from fossil fuel feedstock in at least getting us part of the way? I agree with Elizabeth. It's important not to be too dogmatic at the outset here. And the objective is to have something that is commercially viable and it's clean. Uh, and let countries and companies compete to provide a product that, uh, that, meets, those, uh, that meets those requirements. Um, different countries have different comparative advantages in producing uh, low emissions hydrogen. And so it's natural that you're going to have um, a mix of, of, of sources um, uh, over time as well. Um, I think the, the, the important thing is to focus not just on the sources of low emissions supply, but also to make sure that we have a matching expansion of opportunities to actually use the, uh, that supply um, in, in, in economies around the world. I mean, there are various collaborations uh, underway, and we've heard some about some of them. But in general, our impression is that when you look at the hydrogen strategies that are being proposed around the world, they tend to be focused more on supply than on demand. And when you look at the projects for international trade that are being developed, that are being developed at the moment, there tend to be slightly more emphasis on export-oriented projects than there are on import-oriented projects. And in the end, those have to match up. Otherwise, we're not going to have a, the value chains operating in a way that is really going to contribute to meeting uh, our economic and our climate needs. I wanted to ask Daryl, we heard from Bashir Dabusi about this big blue ammonia project that Aramco has been developing, but there are a number of different ways, different technologies in which hydrogen can be delivered, fuel cells we keep hearing about, compressed liquids and so on. Can you talk us through the main alternatives and where they're at in terms of technical and um, financial viability? Yes, absolutely. Like any new emergent market, there are many pathways and we need to grow and learn and have experience and drive costs down uh, before we can start picking winners. It happens that ammonia is a very strong early contender. There's a very large amount of ammonia that's already used uh, for fertilizing our crops around the world. And that means we have the means to transport ammonia, handle ammonia safely, and trade ammonia in very large quantities. And so we do see ammonia emerging as an important hydrogen carrier uh, in the early days. Liquid hydrogen will come strongly because there's a, a good cost profile there uh, in the long term. Uh, history was made early this year when the first load of uh, uh, liquid hydrogen was shipped by a consortium of companies, including Kawasaki Heavy Industries, uh, from Australia to Japan. So we've actually got a start in the large-scale movement of liquid hydrogen. Uh, that first vessel is about one quarter of the size that ultimately would be used, uh, but that technology is now on the sea and underway. Uh, the pipeline infrastructure that we have for moving very large quantities of energy around the world today will also be used by hydrogen, and this will be gaseous hydrogen in pipelines. Whenever I tell people I'm doing this podcast on hydrogen, they say, oh, my word, but is it going to be safe? 
you know, pumping hydrogen around great distances and pipelines. I have to just put it to you. Absolutely. It's a fair question. And as Tim said earlier, there's 90 million metric tons of hydrogen already in use around the world. Uh, and you're not hearing about hydrogen accidents, not even on a daily, monthly, annual basis. So um, it's a pervasive uh, commodity uh, on the industrial side. What is new is we'll start using hydrogen on new applications that are more in the public domain. And the Hydrogen Council shares a very sincere concern that as hydrogen migrates to new applications, that we have the standards maturing in lockstep so that it is handled safely also in the broader public domain. So uh, this is a big focus area. Uh, no matter which energy form we use, whether it's electricity, natural gas, liquid fuels, all of them involve some degree of hazard. And over time, we have learned how to manage those hazards and manage the risks associated with our energy system. It's part of the territory. And in that sense, hydrogen is no different. Uh, but I do expect, uh, as is already the case with the industrial applications of hydrogen, it will continue to be used safely and deliver the benefits that it has for decarbonization. Bashir Dabusi, technically, could hydrogen in some ways level the energy playing field so that countries with few energy sources now might be able to compete? Or will the cost barrier simply be too great? You've heard from, uh, from Elizabeth uh, that uh, the, the estimate uh, that uh, green hydrogen costs can go down to low costs within the decade, um, it varies. I think it depends on the location, depends on the technology. There's a lot of assumptions that need to be made to be able to get the cost down. So countries that have natural gas are going to be one of the fastest and storage are going to be one of the fastest. If you're specifically talking about clean hydrogen, low carbon hydrogen, you need multiple factors. You need a source of low cost hydrogen production. Typically, that's going to be a hydrocarbon, mostly natural gas uh, conversion or renewables with, I would say, a lower cost uh, renewable energy cost, as well as uh, electrolysis costs. So large-scale electrolysis uh, could enable that. The big issue here is, uh, and, and I mentioned the hydrocarbons, you also need to have low-cost uh, carbon capture and storage. So you need to have not only low-cost, but access and large-scale uh, carbon capture and storage. Because uh, for every you know, a, a ton of hydrogen you produce, you have 10 tons of CO2 to capture. So it's not an easy business. You have to really uh, build up the ability to, to capture and store. So the question you raised is really one of who's positioned to be a big player in hydrogen? And is the hydrogen market going to grow at the pace that people are predicting? Because it's a chicken and egg situation always. It was mentioned also by, by most of my colleagues in, in the discussion, the demand is, is something you need to build up while you're building supply. And again, we're looking at how we can produce the supply, but we're also exploring the demand and the demand evolution, particularly of low carbon or low, uh, you know, low emissions hydrogen. So the question is, who are the players that have the size the cost structure and the storage, or the renewable energy that can play a key role. And, you know, I'll just be very clear here, there aren't too many countries or companies that can do this. The small scale production of low carbon hydrogen 
will happen in niche applications, will happen in small-scale opportunities. We are blessed in, in Saudi Aramco, especially now that we've added the, the Sabic affiliate, that we play a major role in hydrogen and ammonia. We've always been producers of hydrogen for our refining. Now it's how do we take that and go one step further, capture the CO2, store it so we can produce low-carbon hydrogen and low-carbon ammonia. What are the lessons we can learn from, say, other renewable and decarbonizing technologies? For instance, the way in which solar PV markets or wind energy took off. We have some experience in this over the last couple of decades. What can we learn to make hydrogen viable? Elizabeth? Um, yeah, no, thanks, Nisha. And I, and I think you, you, you're mentioning a very important issue. Uh, it, it took many decades. We do not have that time at our disposal. So there needs to be clarity of purpose and clarity of direction quite early on to make sure that we stay on schedule uh, with the IPCC uh, recommendations and the concept, not the recommendations, but the scientific pathway that is set out, which says that we have to halve the uh, emissions by 2030 and decarbonize by 2050. So it is very important that there is a clarity of direction from the government side, that there is a policy, uh, policy direction and enabling frameworks in place that actually uh, provide uh, incentives and signals uh, to, that, that actually enable the, the creation of, of hydrogen market at scale and clean hydrogen market at scale. I think this is a key issue that we need to repeat over and over again. It is about having the decarbonized clean solutions that will meaningfully contribute to climate change efforts. So we cannot leave these two markets alone and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and it needs to be uh, the, the, prior, the overriding priority of climate change needs to play a very important role in, in creating this uh, policy direction uh, for development of clean hydrogen. Tim Gould, the government also, in addition to creating long-term stable policy frameworks, also need to be making financial subventions, financial transfers, as we've seen, for instance, in the early days of solar and wind. Yeah, I think that's almost inevitable. I mean, there's a lot that can be done just with clarity of the regulatory framework. But in the end, um, as we've talked about, there is this gap between you know, the market price and the price of this low emissions product. And we can argue about how big that gap is and how quickly it might narrow. Um, but something needs to be done to create, to, you know, to narrow that gap and, and to bring that low emissions product to market. And there's different ways in which governments can facilitate that. I mean, one of the ones that's being explored at the moment in Europe is this notion of a, a sort of carbon contract for difference. Essentially, what it means is that the government will top up the difference between the market price and, and the price of low emissions hydrogen. Uh, and so whatever that gap is, the government is committed to, uh, to, to cover it. I mean, another approach is for the government, in a sense, to underwrite the relationship between companies that are willing to use low emissions hydrogen and, and, and companies that are willing to supply it. So, so to be a sort of matchmaker and to ensure that those relationships then are, are solidified with some sort of underlying um, guarantee. I mean, that those are the sorts of things that are being looked at uh, in Europe and elsewhere in, in order to make, uh, in order to make you know, those early years of, of low emissions hydrogen use uh, viable. Now, uh, one additional point is that um, you know, we talked a lot about the climate case for low emissions hydrogen, um, but let's also be very aware that there's a, 
there's a there's a very strong energy security gas security imperative particularly in the european union at the moment um to bring low emissions gases or alternative gases into the into the system um and that's political determination is also reflected in a lot of new policy initiatives um at european level um to try and back up um you know that those ambitions have you seen that daryl wilson the impact of the Ukraine war leading to, of course, surging gas and oil prices, but also accelerating the development of hydrogen projects? Absolutely. Within weeks, the European Union responded with the Repower Europe plan, a very substantial increase in their ambition for hydrogen. So uh, absolutely, that has had a, a positive impact in the momentum for hydrogen. Uh, Tim makes a very strong point here around demand and uh, uh, the linking of supply and demand is a very critical and challenging process. It's not easy to do. Uh, one very intelligent approach came out of Germany with the H2 Global Program. So they combine the contract for difference model that Tim was talking about, along with an auction to buy the hydrogen on the supply side, as well as to sell that hydrogen into demand applications in the domestic market in Germany. So you have uh, three instruments working together, uh, a procurement auction, a sale auction and a contract for difference. And this very nicely balances the supply and demand situation. Meanwhile, in the US, we have the uh, newly announced uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, there you find uh, incentives on uh, uh, tax credits, uh, a, a somewhat unique US uh, signature move uh, that they have deployed in other areas. Um, I think in all of these things, we need to be having a very strong collaboration between industry and government. Uh, if there is something to learn from the journey with renewable energy, sometimes too much was spent by governments with too little impact. Um, it almost became a game as to who's going to have the higher feed in tariff. And that was not a, an effective uh, expenditure of the public purse. Uh, those kind of things come when there's not adequate collaboration and sharing of information. And so I think right now is a very critical time of implementation with hydrogen, where there needs to be a strong conversation and a lot of transparency between industry and government to say what can be done, what's the most effective, most cost-effective approach. And it's not always about spending money. Governments also have policy instruments and, and the ability to mandate change. And these things, they impose uh, other costs in the market for industry, and so that's also a matter for discussion. Uh, but as those policy and regulatory uh, instruments are put in place to build up the infrastructure that we need for transport, for example, um, those also have a very big impact. And it's not just money out of the public purse, but it's actually uh, an astute way of, of managing the resources of our total society so that we can accomplish our objectives. Bashir Dabusi, Saudi Arabia has ambitions to be one of the world's biggest suppliers of hydrogen, if not the biggest. So will the focus be on building a market for blue hydrogen, for instance, in the form of blue ammonia or green hydrogen, or how do you see it unfolding? Thank you, Nisha. Um, I, I think that's an excellent question. Of course, um, the Kingdom and Aramco have recently announced uh, our ambition to be one of the largest producers, as you just mentioned. The uh, objective really is to uh, uh, create uh, this uh, low carbon uh, option for, for the world to help in decarbonizing some of the harder to abate uh, uh, sectors like uh, heavy duty transport, like uh, power industry and others, and 
and, and uh, low carbon hydrogen will, will really enable that. Um, in our ambition, uh, we are also uh, looking at uh, uh, synergies with uh, green ammonia because as, as you probably are well aware, the kingdom uh, and, and, and uh, the region has very competitive uh, uh, solar energy or re renewable energy in general, uh, like the NEOM announcement of the uh, world's uh, largest green ammonia uh, uh, production facility that's being built today. Um, that uh, uh, is uh, an area, especially in the northwest of the kingdom, where we, we have an advantage also in producing blue hydrogen, blue ammonia. Um, in Aramco, uh, in fact, uh, we're going one step further and looking at how can blue hydrogen uh, support uh, some of our ambitious efforts to produce uh, synthetic fuels. These synthetic fuels are produced, in fact, uh, uh, through the combination of CO2 that's captured uh, either directly from air or from uh, CO2 point sources, uh, combined with uh, green hydrogen produced from or renewable hydrogen uh, to produce uh, uh, fuels that can be uh, drop-in fuels that can be uh, used in internal combustion engines and really lower the emissions from those internal combustion engines by up to 80% or even more. Uh, and we're actually in uh, collaboration with Formula One and Formula Two and Three, uh, looking at supplying these types of fuels uh, to the market. Uh, this is again an area where we see uh, both uh, blue and green uh, playing a key role and supporting a lot of the uh, liquid fuels uh, uh, development and, and, and ambitions of the company. There have been hydrogen strategies, flagship hydrogen strategies announced by countries all around the world, every continent, countries large and small. But when you step back and assess them, what do they amount to? Are they actually doing the joined up thinking, the kind of thing that you lauded the German government for doing to create markets that will get lift off? What is your assessment? I'd like to ask you, Elizabeth, and then Tim. Um, you know, in the, in January, we actually released the report, the report on the geopolitics of hydrogen, uh, and, uh, and we looked into particularly this issue, you know, what are countries doing, how are they relating to one another, and what are the, uh, the, the concrete plans in place. And what we have seen is a few things. One, uh, that there is, there is an attempt to have a, a bilateral relations, so that, that, that the attempt to have the matching of supply and demand. When we worked on reports initially, there was about 38 countries that have that sort of kind of bilateral arrangement, you know, cross-border collaboration, and now there are 45. So, so it's still growing, and there's still um, an attempt to kind of match uh, a demand and supply. And so, so I think on the political level, you see quite a lot of uh, that uh, conversation going on. When it comes down to implementation, it's a little bit of a different story. We talked a little bit about, uh, you know, how to use hydrogen, where to use it, or whatever. But like we didn't touch upon the the infrastructure that is required for actually producing this. You know, there is uh, to produce green hydrogen, you need need enormous amount of green electricity. So in in our assessment, the serious cross border trade of hydrogen will really take place to take off from the mid thirties. And uh, this period of time will really be the building up both the supply demand, the infrastructure, the, 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 the trade kind of infrastructure, both from a market and physical infrastructure to put in place to have the capacity to manage it. Tim, what's your assessment of the, the kind of 
government programs and, and aspirations that we keep hearing about uh, in terms of whether they're actually going to deliver what they hope they will. Most of the projects that are going ahead at the moment, in a sense, they, they have relatively simple value chains. I mean, either it's, it's sort of on-site production of hydrogen at a existing fertilizer facility, or it's a production of, of hydrogen from offshore wind that then is used in a large refinery that's in, in, in the Netherlands. And, but in the future, we are going to have a more complex set of relationships um, around hydrogen. And I think that's something that is going to be very important for governments to sort of coordinate and manage, um, as Daryl said, in, in close collaboration uh, with industry. Um, we're going to need robust contracts that remain in place for years to actually govern some of the relationships that we're going to have along uh, these new value chains. And, that, and the value chains go all the way from those companies manufacturing electrolyzers or equipment for CO2 capture. Um, we're talking about companies that might then be installing hydrogen production capacity, sort of managing relationships with electricity suppliers or grid operators. Um, there's all sorts of port infrastructure that's going to be needed, pipelines, ships, refueling stations, you know, plants to convert hydrogen to a more readily transportable commodity. And we've spoken about ammonia and then back again into hydrogen. And, and so facilitating all of this and coordinating it and sequencing it in a way that makes sense um, is, is a really big task. Uh, and I think that's where we need to be focusing a lot in this crucial decade, which is a decade, as Elizabeth mentioned, this is the one where we might not have immediately the scale that we're going to have later on, but we need to get these relationships right if we're going to get that rapid growth um, into the 2030s and beyond. So I'm going to ask Darren Wilson to peer into his crystal ball and give us a sense of what will we achieve, what can we achieve in this decade? By 2030, will the hydrogen economy have made significant inroads into heavy industry, chemicals, steels. Give us your best guess. Well, I've been watching this journey for 15 years now, and I can tell you the acceleration we've seen just in the last few years is quite stunning. Uh, we've gone from demonstration projects to say, you know, the technology can work at a, a relatively modest scale into some very large scale projects. Uh, initially, these being clustered in, in hubs. So you find this word in the policy in the US, uh, you find a very good program that IEA triggered uh, with the ports initiative. Uh, this is where the hydrogen technologies come together and the, the interconnectivity and the synergistic benefits of the hydrogen energy system are, are made manifest all in one place. But the next step is to start envisioning infrastructure. So when the highway system was built in the US, there was a vision. Uh, the roads were to go from you know, this major center to that major center. And there was a whole evolution of a, a very complex supply chain around automobiles. And as Tim has said, that's not a simple thing to do. And I think uh, by the end of this decade, we must be seeing that infrastructure kind of mentality starting to unfold and not just hubs, but interconnected hubs uh, and interconnected energy systems. You know, one of the biggest problems we have in energy today is we're very siloed. We use liquid fuels to get around. We use electricity to keep the lights on and keep industry moving. And we use natural gas to heat our homes. And they're really three solitudes. What happens with hydrogen renewable energy is the whole system becomes much more interconnected. And I think that's the journey that has to happen over the balance of this decade is we start getting our heads around 
how does the whole system work together? Uh, there's far too much discussion of this versus that or either or thinking, and we need much more both and uh, kind of discussion. And so the renewable energy sector has to grow up another big step. Uh, and then our view of the world has to be much richer beyond what we've ever considered before with fossil fuels and electricity. So I think uh, things are looking good. The momentum is good. But there's a lot of work here. We're now into the hard work of implementation. And uh, that means we need to be collaborating very actively and getting things done if we're going to be on time. So a real overview there from Daryl. I'm going to ask you, Elizabeth, to just give us a quick snapshot. What do you think the hydrogen economy will look like in 2030? Hydrogen is a part of a bigger puzzle and the jury is still out how some of these things will play out and uh, you know where where hydrogen will pay, play a big role and I think there's a lot of discussion you know I always talk about airplanes you know if we were having this discussion three four years ago we will probably have a lot of short haul uh, aircrafts in the hydrogen sort of space but right now it's clearly moving towards electricity because you already see the you know the, 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 the Deutsche Post in 2024 they're going to have a first fleet uh, you know, of cargo, uh, um, small planes, you know, doing, doing regional work. So, so I think, I think it's a very dynamic space and it has to, you cannot look at the hydrogen in isolation from a broader energy transition. So that's number one. And, uh, and uh, so, so, so with the push that we have right now, uh, I think with a certain level of confidence, we can actually say that the chemical industry, the, the refineries, the steel uh, and the shipping and the long haul uh, aircraft will certainly uh, be very much uh, moving towards this, uh, this particular decarbonization solution. The second point, uh, linking to what Darren was saying, uh, hydrogen is not a fuel re replacement. Hydrogen is an energy carrier. And so wherever you can use direct electricity without adding an additionality of processes and shipping and everything else on top of it, uh, uh, so you need to think about where where is this the most uh, most useful and most uh, uh, most critical. So so thinking from the system perspective where this makes sense and uh, and how it evolves, I think this is going to become a lot more crystallized by the by 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 2030s. I assume that uh, we, I would say that by 2030s we will have the green hydrogen cost competitive, more competitive than blue, quite frankly, because the, the, the CCS side of, uh, uh, of uh, development is uh, lagging compared to other sides of uh, energy transition space. Interesting. Tim Gould? Yeah, I think there's, there's a number of open questions about how energy transitions play out. And a lot of those open questions involve, you know, what do we do in sectors where we can't electrify directly? And those are some of the knottiest problems of getting to a net zero emission system. Now, I think the encouraging thing from the perspective of those looking at low emissions hydrogen is that the answers to many of those knotty questions involve hydrogen or hydrogen rich fuels as either a, a, a potential or actual solution. Um, and so, and there's a sufficiently large number of those questions and a sufficiently large range of potential applications then for hydrogen that you can easily see how this could become an incredibly important part of uh, a future uh, energy system. And so that's why we put such a strong accent on that in the work that we do at the International Energy Agency in collaboration with the Hydrogen Council and our friends at ARENA um, to try and make sure that the, the work is done now to prepare the ground for that kind of future. So finally, Bashir Dabusi, um, Saudi Arabia is investing big in both green hydrogen and blue hydrogen. So which areas do you see breaking through by 2030? 
Yes, Nisha. Um, yes, we are investing heavily in blue, uh, and we're also investing in green, as I mentioned, uh, in support of a lot of the uh, uh, opportunities uh, for synthetic fuels production, as well as uh, producing hydrogen uh, in, in some of the areas where we don't have storage. Um, on technology breakthroughs, this is an area that, uh, you know, we're investing heavily. We're looking at uh, new technologies uh, for reforming, producing uh, hydrogen, using membrane reformers, uh, using uh, various uh, technologies uh, 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 that are really at the, the cusp of, of, uh, of uh, um, the, the global hydrogen supply technology development. Uh, and we're uh, looking at uh, uh, producing that hydrogen uh, from, of course, natural gas uh, uh, quite uh, effectively, but we're also looking at uh, uh, going to even heavier feedstocks as we, as we move forward uh, and and and, prop, uh, and converting uh, some of those heavier feedstocks into hydrogen using these uh, advanced technologies. Uh, we're also looking at uh, 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 technologies for storing hydrogen uh, and transporting it, uh, and uh, we're of course uh, you know ammonia today is is our preferred method for, for, for transporting uh, hydrogen, but we're also looking at opportunities uh, to find uh, new uh, uh, methods, new technologies for uh, uh, transporting. We're looking at, of course, the, the opportunities uh, for liquid hydrogen and others. Uh, and we're looking also at uh, uh, metal hydrides and, and opportunities there. And one of really the technologies that we're very excited about is cracking uh, ammonia back into hydrogen, which enables really uh, delivering hydrogen to uh, a global market. Uh, and, and we have, in fact, one of the most advanced technologies for uh, cracking ammonia, and we're working uh, with our partners really to develop that and scale it up. So on the technology front, I think uh, it's uh, really very exciting next uh, decade for us. And we hope that uh, uh, you know, people will follow uh, where we're going and what we're doing in this area because uh, we hope to have plenty of, of really great technologies entering the market. And thank you very much. Bashir Dabousi, Elizabeth Press, Daryl Wilson and Tim Gould, thank you for joining me to discuss the potential of hydrogen to support the energy transition. Coming up, we delve into the subject of non-metallics. What are they, you ask? Well, in the next episode of Powered by How, the role of non-metallics in a sustainable future, we'll be discussing how non-metallic materials can play a crucial role in reducing energy consumption. Join me, Nisha Pillay, as we discuss these often overlooked but fundamental materials in all our lives. This podcast was brought to you by Reuters Plus in partnership with Aramco.